the Holy Gospel according to Matthew chapter 2. Glory to you, O Lord. Now after the wise men had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Well, deck the halls with boughs of holly, fa-la-la-la-la, la-la-la-la, tis the season to be jolly, fa-la-la-la-la, la-la-la-la. By way of keeping things as jolly as I could, um, I fasted on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. <laughs> By which I don't mean I didn't eat any food. Oh my, no. Uh, oh my goodness, no. Uh, oh my goodness gracious, no. I mean from cheese balls to cheesy hash browns to prime rib to chocolate candies to Chex Mix, I surely did not fast in that way. But I did a fast of sorts by not dining on, not partaking of the news channels for two days as I drove around on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Instead, I, and I did quite a bit of driving, so it was, uh, it was quite a long time. I listened uh, for those two days to IPR Classical. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. I drove into work Christmas Eve listening to the live BBC feed of the Nine Lessons and Carol service from, uh, from Cambridge. I listened to excerpts uh, of both the St. Olaf and Luther College uh, Christmas concerts. I heard orchestras and string quartets and brass quintets and cathedral choirs and a cappella ensembles and soloists and even acoustic guitarists all doing their best 
by way of the fact that it was Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. It was gloriously peaceful. Thursday morning, I ended my fast and listened to the news on my way into work. It was a bit rude, as the news of late seems pretty routinely to have become. It was dissonant sounding compared to the season's theme of peace on earth and goodwill to all. Of course, it wasn't anywhere as close to as rude as this morning's gospel reading, which if you didn't know it was coming, and if you happen to bring any seasonal jolliness with you this morning, pretty much gives you a case of seasonally distant, dissonant whiplash, as it tells you, um, well, one of the worst stories in the Bible, a story you were not taught in Sunday school, a story which for very obvious reasons is never included in Sunday school Christmas programs. But when Matthew is the one telling the story, which he is this year, this terrible story is included in the Christmas season and fully belongs there. Because why? Because, well, remember the verse we heard Christmas Eve, the verse from John's Gospels telling of the Christmas story, the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. Well, here's something that God knows, Matthew knows, and wants us to know too. There is no such thing as the fullness of truth if it does not encompass the entire truth. And the entire truth about this God light that did come to shine at Christmas in the darkness doesn't change the fact. It rather, instead, it reveals the fact that this world has the ability and even an apparent propensity at times to be dark with darkness so dark as to be and I mean this literally, so dark as to be damned dark. Damned meaning this belongs in hell. It's the stuff hell is made of. Which is the level of darkness Matthew tells us about immediately after he tells us of the Magi's visit to come adore the newborn king. It being a king they're looking for, they actually make a first stop not in Bethlehem, but seven miles or so to the north in Jerusalem, that being uh, Judea's capital city where the king of the Jews, Herod the Great, uh, had his palace and palaces. Wise men know this. Um, palaces are where the world's kings are supposed to be born. But there was no newborn in Herod the Great's palace because, of course, the king they were looking for was a king great not with the puffed up greatness of the world's Herods, but was great rather with the oh so unimaginably greater greatness of the world's savior whose greatness was so great that the only thing in the world worthy of birthing, blanketing, and housing him was humility. 
The wise weren't quite yet wise enough to know that. So they did make that first step at that palace in Jerusalem where there wasn't to be found that newborn greatest of all time. But there was in that palace to be found Herod the Great. By the way, he came up with the name himself. <laughs> Who was not only politically shrewd and powerfully connected, he was also politically paranoid and powerfully ruthless. Just pretty much pathologically evil when it came to eliminating any threats to his power that he perceived, be they real or imagined. Sensing threats to his power, uh, just by way of some examples, uh, he executed one of his wives, he executed his mother-in-law, he executed an uncle, and he executed three of his sons. In Bethlehem, as it turns out, there was for Herod a threat, both real and imagined. They were both there, although the imaginary threat was the only one Herod saw. That being his perception that there was someone there who wanted his throne. Someone who wanted to replace him. Someone who wanted to be him, <laughs> which of course that newborn king in Bethlehem has no interest in being. So that threat perceived by Herod was imaginary. That said, well, as they say, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. There was actually a threat that was entirely real. For that child did come to upend, to tear down and turn upside down everything about the world that lifts up the Herods of the world. It's one of the songs I heard as I listened to two days of 91.7. Change shall be break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name all oppression shall cease. Herod was the poster child of oppression. Herod, of course, being precisely of the darkness of the world at its darkness, decided to respond with typical ruthless evil to the imagined threat, not the real one. And so when the Magi ignored Herod's request to return to Jerusalem and tell him all about the little child when they found out so that he too could come adore the newborn king on bended knee, Herod did some math, which he was quite good at. I mean that literally. Some of the engineering things he accomplished were amazing. He did the math and then he sent his soldiers. I don't see these as being regular army. I think these were SS goons whom he sent to Bethlehem with orders to kill every boy child in and around Bethlehem who was two years old or younger. And says Matthew, they did as they ordered. They were ordered. Imagine, as I do, uh, that age in those days was hard to authenticate exactly. Uh, I imagine there were some three and four-year-olds killed, too. But one of those who was killed wasn't the newborn king. For Joseph had been warned of Herod's evil plan in a dream, and Jerusalem being to the north and the Dead Sea being to the east, he took his wife and child to the south and west, going to, to uh, Egypt, 
instead. One can only wish one understood why he was the only one who was saved. One can only wish one could understand why all of Bethlehem's fathers weren't warned in dreams. One can only long to understand because one can't. And Matthew offers no comment in that direction except to say that the prophet Jeremiah had seen it coming centuries ago when he wrote, a voice was heard in Ramah wailing in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. And those same skies above Bethlehem, which not so long ago had heard herald angels singing praises of the holy, innocent Christ child. Now hear the inconsolable sobbing and wailing of mothers mourning the murder of their little ones who, of course, were surely innocent with their own innocence. And Matthew does, when he's the one telling the story, interrupt our fa-la-la-la-las, insisting that we remember those little ones whom the church calendar commemorates in its first feast after Christmas, known as the Feast of the Holy Innocents and Martyrs. And remembering them, we remember because we dare not forget. Remembering them, we remember that it is always the world's most vulnerable who suffer when the world's most powerful are evil. Elie Wiesel, who survived Hitler's Auschwitz as a teenager, wrote a hauntingly powerful book about the experience. Uh, the book is called Night. It's an appropriately dark title. The story needed to be told in all of its darkness was all said later because those who do not remember their history will repeat it. Today, on this fifth day of Christmas, this fa-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-not Sunday. We in the church do remember that the Savior of the world was born into a world that surely needs saving. And by and large, what it needs saving from as much as anything is its own damned self. To save, wrapped in Christmas flesh that is the flesh of us ourselves, God did send to that sable in that little town the gift of something of God's own self, who, as an infant, here at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, was spared the wrath of Herod's sin. Thirty years or so later, however, Matthew will tell us of that grown-up son's steadfast resolve to go to Jerusalem and to look him in the eye, to look evil in the eye, even as it nails him to a cross. Because why? Because he precisely didn't make the trip all the way to us to sing a fa-la-la-la -la -la fake 
news. He made the trip all the way to us to be the song we can keep singing by bringing, by in the flesh being, good news in and for our real world. For the news he brings, the good news he is in the flesh, the good news he would, when it was time, die to prove, is that there is not one damned thing that is as powerful as is the love that God is. And one day all will know. But you, <clears throat> well, you're here. You already know. Which means that this is yours to know. The world's news channels shouting their streams of bad news don't sound reasons for you to despair. They rather, to Christ's church, sound reminders that there is still work to do. And the work is the work of love. Love for one another, love for your neighbor, love especially for the little ones and all the ones who still are the ones who too often pay the price for the world's hate of love. Amen.